Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Peter Hooker is the former co-owner of a company called Fertile Mines, an importer and exporter in the baby goods industry. After 20 years of successful operations, Peter and his business partner, Christine, sold their business. In this episode, I chat to Peter about the importance of IP in a company and why they wish they'd started planning their exit earlier and how to position yourself for the best possible sale. This is Peter Hooker. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. G'day, Simon. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. How have you been? Very well, thank you. Good to hear. Good to hear. Been really excited to hear your story, Peter. I, I uh, in full disclosure here, I know we have actually spoken in the past, so we have that uh, that that benefit. But um, yeah, I'm just really keen. I've been excited to share your story with our with our listeners. So thank you for taking the time. That's a pleasure, Simon. Peter, do you want to kick off and maybe just give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Well, I've got a, an eclectic background. I'm a chemical engineer, and then I was a stockbroker, a research analyst for quite a few years. And it was um, just after that that I met Christine because she was selling her car and I was potentially buying a car for my mother. So I looked up in the paper, as you did in those days, and uh, saw that advertisement, rang up, and she said what her name was. I said, have you got family who farm in Victoria? And she said, yes, I have. And uh, it turned out that I'd met her aunt, uncle and, and cousins many years before that. So yeah. there was obviously some connection there. We went round, looked at the car, didn't want it as it happens, but um, I asked her, why are you selling? And she said, I've invented this thing. And I said, oh, well, that sounds interesting. Tell me about it. And then one thing led to another. Yeah. Wow. It's it's funny how uh, I think the universe brings people together sometimes. So, you know, clearly, you know, various connections there, but you guys were clearly meant to do something together. That's how I see it too. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the, uh, the business. The thing that um, Christine had invented was um, a device that allows pregnant women to wear their own clothes when they're pregnant. Now, Christine was a newsreader and uh, she was also pregnant a couple of years before I met her and um, she'd struggled to find maternity clothes that fitted. She wanted to wear the same wardrobe that she'd invested in and came up with various contraptions and finally best-selling product for 20 years, the belly belt, right. which adapts normal clothes into, pregnant, um, into maternity wear. How, how does that work? Because I'm, I'm thinking there's a whole level of physics here that I'm trying to, I'm <laughs> struggling to get my brain around. <laughs> well, it's, it's really disarmingly simple. It's a button-in insert panel 
of varying sizes with different lengths of bits of elastic that go in between the sides of the fly and a cover-up panel that covers your knickers. Or not mine, but, you know, the pregnant woman. <laughs> Those who are wearing one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no judgment there anyway, so all good. <laughs> okay, so that's great. So, you know, this is the classic entrepreneurial, saw a problem, wanted a solution, couldn't find one, and so, you know, she devised one. That's exactly right. She's extremely creative. Yeah, that's brilliant. And and so you guys had this chat obviously something rang a bell for you with this idea. You saw the opportunity for what it was. I mean, clearly women are going to continue give, uh, giving birth and having babies. So yeah, uh, nice, steady, ongoing, growing market there. Um, yes. So we saw a, a niche. We had a product. We patented it and got our business going. Fabulous. And so take me back. When when did the business start? 1998. 98. Okay. So very early, early beginnings of the internet, not really used as e-com back then, right? Correct. We had, we used email, but we were quite early in having our own website where we sold our product, but boy, you wouldn't want to look at it today. (laughs) (laughs) I I think a lot of people would be saying that. So, so what was the main, how how did you go to market? What, what was the approach? Well, We went to baby shows, so there are expos that are about parents and babies and children. We go to them, and sometimes store buyers go to those places. And separately, we tried to bang down the doors for, you know, David Jones, bras and things, Target, whoever would be interested in in the product. And, of course, it's, it's a bit of an ask for a buyer to take on a new supplier and a new product, and they think, well... If this does does the job of maternity wear, then I'm going to sell less maternity wear, and that's not a good thing. So there was some resistance on that level as well. But we um, we hammered away and um, got a start with some of those bigger companies, which was really the making of us. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because uh, you know I'm thinking about this out loud, really, but you're going to these traditional stores who. Look, let's be honest, they know that was sort of pre-real e-com. So their, their business model was very mature and you, you're fundamentally introducing a new product category. That's right. Does it sit with the maternity wear? Does it sit somewhere else? They yeah. often didn't have a place that was a good place for our product. Yeah. And, and, and I also find it interesting, you know, this idea of those, I mean, they're your customers, but they're obviously big stores, potential, the potential to cannibalise existing revenues. And it's, you know, I think... The more we continue to evolve, you look at look at the times these days. I mean, everything moves so quickly. And I was having a discussion with a, a client of ours recently where we were chatting about the need to cannibalize your own revenue. Because if you're not innovating and evolving and coming up with things that will, you know, disrupt your own market, then somebody else will likely do it for you. And that doesn't leave you in a very good position. That's so true, Simon. And um, we did that a couple of times with the products that we launched, we thought, well, will this product affect our existing sales? Well, it might, but we're better off doing it because if we don't, somebody else will. You're so right. And so you guys started off, did you seek external investment for this thing? Did you bootstrap it? How how did you get going? Essentially, we bootstrapped it. Um, We didn't 
borrow from a bank. Neither of us wanted to pledge our homes as security. So on really on the smell of an oily rag by modern budget standards. Uh, and the reason Chris was selling her car uh, was she'd gone to one of the best packaging designers in Australia and she'd realised that the real estate on the box was the best marketing we could have. So she wanted to really make a splash with that. And that was, a at the time, a really big bill, more than $10,000. So she was going to sell her car. I said, you don't, you don't sell your car, you need it. I'll put money in. So, and then we went, we were 50-50 in, in the company with um, a bit more capital than the 10000 But, you know, that, that was still a big investment for us at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's fascinating. And, and you know, having done startups myself, I know these early stages, there's so much work. There's so much, you know, you've got these ideas and then it's, it's almost like when you explore one area to, you know, answer a question, it opens up five more questions and it can take time. So what, what did that sort of journey look like from that idea and you seeing the idea and agreeing to invest before you kind of had a product that you could actually sell? Christine had had, uh, had identified a manufacturer, an in those days an Australian-based manufacturer. You don't see many of them in the clothing industry these days, not at volume anyway. So that was already set up. Um, so we, we bit the bullet and we placed orders and we had stock and then we just had to, had to move it at the expos or to the, um, to the trade buyers or quite soon on the internet. Mm, mm. Yeah. We just found that once one major customer took us on and the other major customers were looking over their shoulder and, oh, okay. We were able to say, well, we're in bras and things and target and eventually big W and, and so on thought, oh, well, I, I better have some of this too. Yeah, yeah, you reduce the risk for them, don't you, really, by them seeing yeah. their competitors do it. That's right. And you prove up your your sales. We can say, you know, well, we sell X volume and, and that yeah. makes them feel better. So, so that's an interesting thing. You banged on a lot of doors. You talked to a lot of people. You must have had a lot of no's along the way, people who, you know, talk to me about that. Did you get people who just didn't get it? Absolutely, absolutely. And um that's that's part of business, isn't it? And in some of those cases, they turned around and because we'd made contact earlier and we'd kept on making contact and they observed the product and they observed us and they realized that we were going to be around for a while. I mean, there's confidence about the product and there's confidence about the supplier, isn't it? And gradually that confidence in some of these people built to the point where we had enough outlets in Australia that we didn't actually want anymore because in doing so, we might reduce the sales at, at our existing customers and we wanted them to, to perform well as well as they could. Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting balance that for those who, who sell into what I'll call it. It's a, it's a basically distribution partnerships, right? But it's a, that's an interesting model and, and I've certainly run businesses that do that as well. Yeah, where's the line between wanting to continue to bring on people, knowing that some people may actually drop off and so you need a certain level of renewal? But, yeah, if the people drop, people tend to drop off because they're not successful, right? So, you know, striking that balance must be kind of hard to navigate at times. It is, and it's, I think it's about optimising the points of presence that you've got. You don't need five stores in the same sub suburb. Yeah. You need places where people can go. The major shopping centres, you need a presence in them. You may need a presence in major regional centres um, and specialty stores. And once we'd achieved that, that was 
that was about it. Yeah, okay. And did you ever, um, and so you, where on this line did you guys start getting into the whole e-com side of things? Oh, I would have said before 2000 for sure. I, I can't remember exactly, Simon, but, but yeah, certainly yeah. very early on. And, you know, we had a basic website that generated an email. You've got an order, came in, and we picked and packed it in our houses and offices and so forth. And, uh, you know, we didn't have premises in those days. So, you know, some of the day was spent stuffing envelopes full of um, product and boxes, lots of boxes. Yeah. <laughs> the classic entrepreneur wears all hats, right? <laughs> Dead right. Yeah. I think that's almost a rite of passage though, isn't it? You know, like when you start a business, you you there's something about having to do it all that gives you a different appreciation, not just for the business, but for eventually the people who come into it. That's so right. And, you know, we learned from distributing overseas that nobody sells your product with the passion and the knowledge that you do. You're lucky if that happens. It, it, it's rare. Yeah, and I think that translates to almost every business. You know, I think you speak to any business owner and they'll say to you, of course, the, the holy grail would be to have staff who act like owners. But then again, you know, not everybody's willing to <laughs> work those hours and you certainly can't afford to pay them for all those hours. So it's never really a, a, a realistic expectation, but I, I guess that's where things like culture and, and stuff like that come in though, right? Sure. And, you know, what you're after from a team is commitment. I guess one of the ways we generated commitment in our staff is by showing our own commitment and gradually building a team with a set of shared values, um, yeah. which I've, I, it was one of the most valuable experiences that we had as we built, and built our business. Yeah, that's a really fabulous point, and and I'd I'd like to circle back on that in a bit because it's it's um it, it's such an important lesson for anybody to to kind of learn. Take me back a little bit when when you guys started the business. Did you you know you've put money in now? Christine's obviously put a lot of other um, resources in as well. Did you have a bit of a um, even rough exit sort of strategy plan idea when you kicked the business off? Maybe not initially. I mean we. we- we certainly saw the next five to ten years ahead of us in in the business if it if it became successful and it did. But we knew that for any successful exit to occur, we needed some degree of scale and re- relevance in the market. So that's what we went out for. Yeah. So take it a step at a time, really. But uh, and and um, and and what sort of how big did the company get to? What so are there any sort of metrics you can share around that that gives us some perspective? Oh, well, look, um, I can say that we distributed externally in more than 30 countries, that we had, I think, seven or 800 stores that stocked our products in Australia. Uh, as part of our journey, we um, bought a baby carrier brand called Hugabub, which was the number one wrap carrier in its um, in, in the baby carrier segment in Australia. And I think uh, our maternity accessories range, as it eventually grew to, would have been the number one maternity accessories, accessories range in Australia. So we had fewer products successful in export markets, but of course they're much bigger. The US market's 15 times the size. So yeah, it's huge. It's huge. So in terms of like things like turnover, was it seven figures, eight figures? Can you uh, can you give any context around that? Yeah, it was. Um, well over two million. 
So you're up into seven figures now. It's um, and it's interesting just in terms of the, the um, statistics for for those listening. You know, when you look at private companies in this country, there's about two and a half million businesses, roughly. And interestingly, two million of them turn over two million or less. So that's that's fundamentally small business. So once you get up over that two million mark, you're now kind of into that really the top twenty percentile of businesses in terms of turnover. So it, it does get quite interesting from there. Generally speaking, um, you know, you don't have to share all the nitty gritty details, but it's, I'm just thinking out loud, it's a business, you're investing in manufacturing and product and everything else. Were you, did it have good margins in it? Is it tight? Was it competitive? Because it sounds like you're a bit of a niche there. So, look, Simon, that's a really good point. And one of the keys in um, enabling margins is uh, intellectual property and your protection of your product. So, we, owned our own brand, that's also fundamental. So we had gross margins that started off in the high 60s. Wow. And yep. and that, as is the way of the world, competition, customers that want more and more with each renegotiation, imbalance in negotiating power between um, small business and big business, those kinds of things gradually eroded, sometimes the dollar, manufacturing costs, you know, see one of the lessons is that trend in gross margins is inevitably going to be down, so plan for it. That's a really good point. One of the things we've talked a lot about is, you know, and and you would see this out there too, Peter, but, you know, companies, they grow to a certain size and they continue, you know, they're obviously thinking about, well, how do we continue growing? And I, I believe invariably most businesses will ask themselves this question at some point. And it's do we to to continue growing? Do we bring on new products or services so that we can start cross selling to an existing customer base, or do we double down on our kind of specialty, our niche, and try to sell more of the same thing just to more people? And I, you know, I, I see and appreciate the arguments for both options, right? And invariably, you can't do both. Certainly not at the same time. So yes. I don't know. Do you have any view around that? Yeah. Look, we 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 do. Um, and it essentially boiled down to the fact that our patent protection is a, is a time patent protection is a time limited thing. So what's the priority? If we if we were selling one of our products to every six pregnant women in Australia or five as it was at at, at its peak, then if we can do a fraction of that in the states, in the UK, in Germany, then that's where the biggest upside lies. So that's what we set out to do before we concentrated on once that had reached some level of maturity, going back and broadening the range. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So double down on the niche, you're getting known, you probably have efficiencies in doing that as well. It's um, Yeah, it's funny. I, I, one of the questions I often get asked is, you know, which, which way to go with those two questions when you're thinking about eventually selling? You know, if you want to sell your company to somebody, as we all know, selling to a strategic buyer generally will, will has the potential to generate a, a better value. But it's it's if you have a really um, diversified product slash service range, generally people are really really good at one thing, and then the the other things they introduce they're less competitive at because they just don't have the advantages that they used to have. Yes, I I absolutely agree with that. Simon, and um, cases in point were 
Well, the Australian baby goods market is relatively small. In order to justify our sales force and our service capability, we chose to distribute other people's brands. And that was good as far as it went. But <clears throat> we, we made profit from that, but there's nothing saleable in it. Yeah. So uh, it gave us the critical mass. But when the time came to sell, you know, there was no premium in passing on those contracts. Yeah, sure, sure. So you started around 98, you said. And how long, how long did you guys hold the business for? 20 years. So we exited in 2018. 20 years. That's a, that's a really fantastic run at it all. At, at what point during the 20 years did you guys start to talk about exits? You know, where, do you remember when it first started coming up? Yeah, it, it first started coming up probably later than it should have because, in retrospect, an ideal time to sell when as all the stack column charts are going up like uh, at, a, at a decent slope and um, you've never had a reversal and all of the products that you've brought in are adding to sales and the original product is still kicking goals and all that sort of thing. So then you can argue that there's an aggro- a growth premium built in there or should be built in. So we probably should have talked about it in 2007, but in fact, we probably didn't talk about it until 2010. And then it took a long time for the various moving parts of company performance, security of ownership of certain IP that we we bought, the team that we had, the markets we were in, the climate for selling a business, all those things had to align for us to achieve the eventual exit. So it takes a long time. Some people can yeah. do it sooner, I'm sure, but for us it took a while. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the kind of questions that came up with one of my other guests was, you know, there's a number of factors, variables at play when you go to sell a business. You know, there's what's happening in the big macro environment, the stuff that's going on, you know, sometimes in a more localised market, then then within your company and then, of course, within your own personal perspective on the world. You know, we were discussing What's more important from a timing perspective if you want to sell your company? Is it, you know, getting on board when the big macro environment's moving or is it trying to make sure that everything internally in your company feels kind of right? Uh, do, you, do you have a view on that at all? Yeah, look, I think unless the external environment is absolutely dire, if you've got everything running correctly in your company, you'll find a good buyer. Yeah. yeah so I think there's there's... In the depths of recession, that obviously makes it difficult both for your own top line and for the for the the buyers that might be out there, their access to funds and their appetite for risk. Mm. But at most other times, if you've got a positive sales outlook, good IP protection, a good team in place, then there are buyers out there for you. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, pe- people are looking for quality, right? Sure. Yeah, I also sometimes wonder too. It's maybe this is just a sign of me getting old. <laughs> um, things move so much faster these days. You know, like the, the access to information, access to capital flows. You know, my my grandfather was a was a bank manager. You know, this is this is going all the way back to to World War Two, and he, you know, the idea that you know you wanted to go and borrow money or get an investor. Like it wasn't anything like it is today where there are entire, there's an entire infrastructure built around 
directing capital flows and bringing in investors. And, and let's be honest, there's more money now than there ever was. So clearly people have to look for a place to put that money to get a return. So it's, I, I just, yeah, it just makes me sort of think these days it's, you know, as coming back to our point about markets being up and down, at the end of the day, there's always people out there looking to get some kind of a return and make some kind of investment or prepare for that next stage of life. Yeah, I think you're right, Simon. And the business building, buying, selling cycle is not the only cycle that's faster these days. The product development cycle is faster. Look at the speed with which the world invented new vaccines, for example. Look at the, we get new cars much faster. We've got fast fashion, which is replacing stock several times a season. So that's all based on an acceleration of of various cycles. And, you know, with a business, you can now probably build an online business, put a business together, build an online business and flick it quite quickly. Yeah, no, you're right. We we had a client who, young lad, I I didn't get his specific age. He looked like he was about 25. I think he was late 20s, around maybe 30 tops, but um, had done exactly that. He, He had a job doing digital marketing for someone else he realized that you know there's a lot of opportunities there he investigated a couple of different industry segments found one that was underrepresented online started a company found suppliers literally just organized you know a 3PL third party logistics provider so he never saw product it literally came in overseas went to the 3PL they shipped it for him and he launched in his first year he took home 750k <laughs> And uh, right. and in his yeah and 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 in his second year he took home a million and a half and that's actually when we sold his business for him and you know to think that somebody could turn around at that age and drive that much value in such a short period of time completely debunked all of the theories and <laughs> and and sort of cliches I guess that I've grown up with certainly and I guess if we were building our own business. Today, starting now, instead of in 1998, we would have done it completely differently yeah. um, and using some of those lessons that you've, you've just mentioned. You know, direct to consumer is the way to go. The old style manufacture, have a distributor, have a sell to a wholesale customer. Yeah, that's a challenged model. Yeah, there's a, well, there's a lot of links in the chain, isn't there? So there's All links in the chain and there's pressure on each of them. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit, you know, obviously respecting confidentiality here, but um, when you started to move towards selling, you know, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, business owners that I speak to, so many of them get a tap on the shoulder, you know, they start having conversations, for good or bad, it leads to a sale. You know, I guess we we at Exit Advisory um, very much talk about running a process to try to design the right outcome, stuff like that, but recognising that a lot of it just happens with that tap on the shoulder. What happened? What was your story? How did you, you know, where did the seller come from? What did all that sort of look like leading up to the to a transaction? Yeah, good point, Simon. Um, the sellers all, or sorry, the buyers all came from within our own industry. And I think it's quite easy to understand why. They're the ones that already have a presence in the market. They're the ones that can plug our sales in, maybe not make a big increase in their fixed costs, a moderate increase in their variable costs, and away they go. They're talking to the same customers by and large as we were, and um, our product ranges were a, uh, were a good fit. So we exited by selling 
stock and IP as opposed to an operating business. Mm, mm. That's interesting. And did you, I mean, I, I speak to so many people who, you know, they'll come to me and say, like, what's my business worth? And because I think people always have a perception of, well, you know, put aside valuation theories and all that sort of, you know, <laughs> technical stuff. Most people inherently kind of think, oh, well, it's probably worth X or at least I might be comfortable with X. Did, did you guys have that kind of a number in mind, you know, even maybe before you spoke to a, a, a potential buyer? Yeah, well, as a stockbroking analyst, I've been a professional business valuer, so yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys had a, a good sense and, and, you know, when you went through the process, did you – well, talk to me. Talk to me about the buyer. Like, did what? What did that process sort of look like? You know, what's your- just to wind back a little bit. We mm. had, I think, I mentioned this. We'd bought uh, a brand of um, baby carriers. Yep. And what we found was that the maternity accessories range and the baby carriers interested different people from within the same industry. And that was perhaps um, a surprise. We had initially planned for exiting to one buyer, but as it turned out, we found a buyer that was really keen for the maternity accessories and not the carriers, and somebody who was really keen for the carriers and not the maternity accessories. So it made the deal more complex. The timing, we were lucky that the timing all came together with the right people at the right time in the right sequence, but it was doable and we did it. And, and that, that's exactly that point about do I bring on more products and cross-sell or do I drive deep into that niche, right? Like what will be more valuable in the eyes of an acquirer? Um, now, at the end of the day, you may have still got all the value you want, but, it, but as you say, it adds a layer of complication or complexity, right? Yes, it does. And had we had our time again, we probably would have been more focused. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. What did the actual kind of transaction look like from a logistical kind of perspective? You know, you, you start having conversations with people. They probably ask you for information and things like that. What, what generally does that look like? We, we were lucky to be working with an advisor in a business similar to yours, Simon, and um, they were well aware of the proper process and the need for data rooms and so forth. So we, we put together our financial information and an IM and um, and a data room. And so what, IM, for those listening, is an information memorandum. So, you know, it's a, a, a basically a detailed booklet talking about your business. So, yeah. Sorry, right. Peter. Sorry. Yep. Uh, Simon and, um, yeah, so we had all that, which we prepared. It's a lot of work, but it was all available information. Uh, we worked hard to put the right, I suppose, to deliver the right impression to, to the marketplace. And then the, the process, it, it helps to have an advisor. And I'm saying that because, yes, they provide value added in the knowing what to do and when to do it, but also it's important for somebody who's not directly interested in the transaction to be able to have those conversations with buyers, be able to represent the buyer's interests back to the seller and say, well, you know, what about this? What about that? Let's do this. Let's do that. We found that very helpful. Yeah, great. Did you, and, and having an advisor probably answers part of this question, but I, I've, I've known people that got tapped on the shoulder and went into that process, certainly with no advisor. And one of the most common things they say, other than it didn't work, <laughs> is that it just took so much time. 
like it becomes this second job, it becomes all-consuming. And in actual fact, most of them, their regret is not that the deal didn't go through, that they just they, they feel like they wasted so much time. What was it like for you? Even with an advisor, it's extremely time-consuming because you're, you're, you're brainstorming who the buyers could be, you're strategizing with your, um, with your advisor, that takes time, you're preparing the information, Either you're writing the IM or you're sending the information to the advisor to write the IM. You're preparing and checking the data, checking it for inconsistencies, making sure that the forecasts are robust, checking that the stock's the stock. And, you know, there are myriad jobs that need to be done and need to be done with a high degree of precision and confidence so that you can... Well, you don't want a disappointed buyer, do you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and you only get one chance at a first impression. So, talk to me about like. So, when you started going through this, how, how big was the team broadly? We had around ten people, uh, including Christine and me. Yeah, right. Okay. And and other than Christine, of course, was there anybody within the team that you kind of brought into the fold and had talked to about what your plan was and you know what you were trying to achieve, so you could enlist them, I guess, for their help? Look, we eventually did, but. Most of what we were doing tactically was behind the scenes and we 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 told the team well we're talking to this group and and this group are helping us strategically with our business and they knew that we wanted to progress strategically so um, they also knew that we'd recently made an acquisition so for all they knew it was another acquisition gotcha yeah and then when the time was right when a when a deal was reasonably imminent. We brought them into the fold because obviously we, we wanted them to stay with us and, and help us until the right time. And we achieved that. Oh, perfect. Oh, well, and that was my next question was how, how did they take it? Did, you know, was it a general sense of positivity? Was there a range of people? Did anybody get concerned? Look, I, I'm sure there are always concerns, aren't there? But, but we were lucky by having built a team that was full of highly employable people because they were good at what they did and they were generally very high-quality employees, trustworthy, diligent, great people. So that sort of person is not going to have trouble finding another job, and indeed they didn't. I've I've been amazed and enthusiastic about some of the things that that those people have gone on to. So so that's – and, and, you know, that's touching on that culture – Part again, which which we will will touch on again in a second. But it's um, you know, just out of interest though, you mentioned that some people went on and found other jobs. So was the intention that hey, we've already got a finance person or a bookkeeper or whatever? Did they always expect that there would probably be some people they'd let go? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and that's and that's that's a bolt on kind of scenario, which is quite common. So I think one one person one person found a role with with an acquirer. Um, but other than that, it was um, people were off in their own direction. Yeah, and sometimes that's just the closing of a chapter, right, in, in, in a story for everybody. Yeah. So, you know, without getting into the sensitive sort of any sensitive topics, were you, were you happy with the valuation that you achieved from the transaction? Yes, we were. Right. And fair. did it align with your calculations, what you were thinking originally? Because there's been – Oh, look. It, you can still always, be happy without it. Yeah. <laughs> one would always want more. But I thought it was reasonable. We structured uh, the deal with a with an earnout, mm-hmm. and that was fair. Fair in the sense that the buyer didn't pay everything up front. You know, you can't expect the level of trust and confidence in a product range um, in a buyer that you yourselves have. So that's got to be proven. 
they um, took the stock and they took the customer list and off they went. They added new customers. Part of the maternity part of the business went to a US-based firm. Um, they were able to get new customers in the US. We benefited from the sales results that they achieved um, that we could probably would have struggled to achieve because of their, their US presence, presence. So, you know, I thought it was eminently fair. Great. And, and, and so you, you achieved your own out? Yeah. Yeah, great. And, and gosh, we like hearing stories about people hitting their own outs because, you know, there's, there's always enough stories about people not getting there. Roughly, you know, percentages, what sort of percentage were you paid up front? Was it paid in increments after that? Can you remember that sort of detail? Or? Yeah, yeah, look, it was um, probably something like two-thirds up front from memory yep. and the rest came in quarterly increments based on the sales performance for, the, for that quarter. It was easy reporting. It was just based on sales, not on some kind of notional hard-to-calculate profit figure. I think that I, I'd strongly recommend that kind of structure. It's simple and it's you can't argue with the data. Absolutely. Look, that's a you know that's a really good point for for any of our listeners to take away. You know, about two thirds up front is is you know that's that's common with what I see as well. But I love the fact that you had it based on sales. It's clean. It's simple. Nobody can get cute with calculations. It is what it is. Um, and and I do agree that that is very much a key to having earnouts that are. Uh, not just achieve, but genuine. <laughs> genuine. And I think it, you, you save arguments and, and uh, contentious issues by simplifying the structure. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a great point. Peter, I'm going to ask you in a moment, don't want to put you on the spot, but I'll ask you in a moment perhaps m- maybe if there is one tip, uh, having gone through all this experience that you, you would share with entrepreneurs. But while you let that bubble away in the back of your mind for a moment, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I'm working in values-based leadership, and um, we have a business called Your Culture Strategy. I'm a business mentor. I'm seeking to help businesses grow, perform, and uh, have engaged in high-performing teams. And I'm also doing some uh, uh, board work, committee work, governance roles, advisory boards, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's great. And and here we are. We've touched on the the magic word almost is is culture again, and you know, it, I just take away from your story that having that culture and is what fundamentally attracted and, and enabled you to keep, yeah, emotionally intelligent, good quality people and, and run a business that lasts for 20 years. Look, I, I think it's fair to say we made mistakes along the way. We, we started off with <clears throat> we were lucky to have great shared values between Christine and me and we never had an argument through the course of our of our partnership. And I think that's, that's, that's something really positive. We probably, out of a perceived need of urgency, made some decisions, hiring decisions and other decisions along the way that we needn't have done and probably didn't run the values test as well and as well as we could have done. And that applies to the odd employee, it applies to applies to people we were in distribution relationships with, that sort of thing. But there isn't one of those that wouldn't have worked out better if we hadn't have applied a values filter and been strong on what we stood for. Yeah, fantastic. Is there one tip that, you know, there's entrepreneurs out there, business owners do, doing what they're doing, they're in the grind, they're, they're trying to achieve goals and live the life and 
you know, is there one thing that from your experience you'd, you'd like to share or that you think might help them? Yeah, I think there'd be a number of things. But one I'll pick, Simon, is is to try to build something that is saleable. Now, that sounds facile, but what I mean by that in our case is a portfolio of intellectual property. If we had not have had our patents, registered designs, trademarks, and so forth, we would have been behind the eight ball in terms of what it was we could transfer to a buyer with certainty and some degree of confidence that they could continue the sales same or greater levels. So I would, if you've, you're in a product-based business and you've got an innovation, protect it and build your IP portfolio. And that can be done with trade secret as well and so forth. Um, patents and trademarks aren't the only way, but um, um, ask yourself what it is that a buyer is going to want to receive from you to increase their confidence and future maintainable sales. Mm. So, I mean, if I could summarise that for a second, I mean, if you're listening to this, put yourself in the shoes of a buyer and look at your business through their lens and say, well, if I was a buyer, what would I want? Mm. And then when you come up with those top three things, maybe there's a, a good starting point. Yes, Simon, and I've seen so many businesses in the industry that we've we've been in, but other industries too, and they've worked hard. They've got a distribution contract selling somebody else's brand. They've worked hard. They've built it up only to have either that distribution contract withdrawn from them, the terms made more difficult, or um, not being able to sell their business for a premium. So all that work, yes, they've paid themselves salaries, but they've got no capital gain on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Peter. I've uh, always, as always, enjoy chatting to you. I, you know, I'm really grateful that you've given up your time and and been willing to share your story. And and I just know there's been so many nuggets of gold in there that people will be able to sink their teeth into. So, thank you so much. How how do people get in contact with you if they'd like to reach out? Sure. Well, it's simple. Our business is called yourculturestrategy.com, and I'm on LinkedIn. So it'll be easy to find. Fantastic. So Peter Hooker on LinkedIn, uh, if you do reach out to him, perhaps, um, you know, don't be one of those weird people who just sends connection requests Put a uh, without, a, without a note, send a note, maybe let him know that you heard him on Buy, Build, Sell podcast so he knows where you're coming from. And, uh, and yeah, otherwise it's yourculturestrategy.com. Peter, thank you once again for your time. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been a pleasure. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, 
visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. 